Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. And I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Jordan uh, preached last week on chapter 6. And as I was uh, listening to his sermon and as I was uh, um, preparing for this sermon and, and, and doing some reading, uh, one of the things that one of the commentators said uh, caught my attention. And basically he says that at, the, at chapter 6, uh, he says, we come to the point where Christian interpreters shake hands with each other in order to part company not to be reunited again until the resurrection of the dead in chapter 20. So uh, it seems like everyone agrees or most people agree from chapters 1 through 5. But when we get to chapter 6, it seems like interpretations just go all over the place. And I think, I think it makes sense. The book of Revelation, we've said it multiple times, it's, a, it's such a complicated book. But I think that another thing that this commentator says, I, I actually like, and I think this is the attitude that we should take, and I know that Jordan mentioned it as well. Uh, he says, when it comes to these varied interpretations, and he's talking more specifically about who the rider on the white horse is, he says, when it comes to these varied interpretations, it is not really possible to split the difference. The only true way to interpret it with a clean, the only true way is to interpret it with a clean conscience before God in the spirit of charity toward those who differ. And I think that's, that's what we want to do. We want to be interpreting scripture with a clear conscience before God because what God says is extremely important and we don't want to be making up things that he actually didn't say or didn't mean to be interpreted. Um, but when we come to a book such as difficult as this, you, you will notice that instead of saying, this is how it is, I'm probably going to be saying more like, this is what I think it is, or this is, uh, this is what I believe this passage means. But I'm going to be a little bit more reserved in the interpretation of this book because I want to have a clear conscience before God and I want to have a spirit of charity. So with that said, let's pray. And let's ask God for his help in this passage. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we are gathered in your name. We thank you that we are people from every nation and tribe and people and tongue. And we are gathered in your name to worship you, to bring you glory and honor. And God, I pray that you lead us today by your spirit, that you speak through your word and that you bring your word to bear in our lives, that your spirit would transform us as we read what you have inspired, the revelation that you've given to your servant, John. God, please um, be with us and lead us. Please fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand and, and let's read Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7 verse 1 says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, 
holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any, any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their, in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I, I want to give a bit of a, of a summary or a big picture of, of what we've seen so far. And, you know, we've seen the, the letters to the seven churches or the, the, the messages to the seven churches. We've talked about how the entire book of Revelation is addressed to these seven churches. And like with any other book of the Bible, we have to first figure out what it means to the original audience. And then we can uh, begin to in interpret and apply the book to us. And then we see that these churches are experiencing persecution. They're experiencing tribulation, afflictions. And each one of them receives a message that depending on their spiritual status, either encouraging in a, in a good way of saying, stand firm, keep doing what you're doing, 
conquer, to the one who conquers, I will give this and this and this. Uh, but if the church is unfaithful, the message is a message of repentance, right? I, have, I know your work and I have this against you and you have to change your situation. But to each one of the churches, uh, each one of the churches is encouraged to conquer, to be victorious, to overcome, which is, uh, if you, I'm sure you have noticed by now that the theme of conquering is a very important theme of the book of Revelation, right? That Jesus is the one who conquered and the saints are called to conquer. Uh, and then we see uh, uh, a vision of God's throne. And it's a glorious vision. And even though things look crazy for the seven churches, and even though they are being persecuted and some of them are being martyred, we see that God is seated on his throne and he is ruling. And there is nothing that escapes his, uh, his power, his control. And this should be encouraging for the seven churches to know that their God is on the throne. And then in chapter 5, we have an image of a, a scroll that no one is able to open. And so John begins to weep because no one can open this scroll. And, and we have said that this scroll contains the plans that God has to redeem the world and to judge his enemies. And so... John has been waiting for this revelation all along. And when, when no one is found worthy to open this, this scroll, then he is, he is obviously sad. He is obviously distressed. But he hears that the lion of Judah, the root of Jesse, has conquered and he is worthy to open the scroll. But as we have also seen in the book of Revelation, there is this uh, device used between the things that John hears and the things that John sees. So when he turns and sees, instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb that has been slain. And this is the, this is, um, the Lord Jesus who has conquered, not through the sword, not through military uh, conquest, but he has conquered through the sacrificial offering of his life. He has conquered by dying on the cross. And so um, then, like I said, most interpreters shake hands and say, all right, we'll see you again in chapter 20 because we get to chapter 6 where things start to get a little bit more complicated. Uh, and I wanted to give you just a really, really brief overview of three different interpretations uh, of these chapters, chapter 6 and 7. And this is just so that we can maybe uh, wrap our minds around it a little bit better. This helps me. I hope that it helps you. Uh, there are basically three main views. There, there's a bunch of different variations, but I'm just going to give you a very simplistic summary of three different views. One of the views uh, takes chapter 6, which is the seven seals, or, the, or actually the six seals. Um, yeah, they take them to be uh, future. Basically, all of these things are are. Uh, predicting events that will happen in the future. And more specifically, uh, a lot of people believe that these are events that are described, or, or sorry, that are describing the tribulation or the great tribulation, which is uh, a time after the church has been raptured into heaven and God's judgment comes upon all people. And so in this view, the 144,000 people from Israel that are sealed 
they believe that they are a literal group of Jews and they are a literal 144,000 people that will be saved during the time of the tribulation. Now, a different view, which would be a view that sees most of this happening in the past, would see the seven seals as God's judgment upon Israel, specifically upon Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. And that's something that uh, Jordan mentioned last Sunday. Um, They believe that all of these are a fulfillment of God's promises against the people of Israel if they continued in their unrepentance, in, in their rejection of the Messiah. Of course, we know that they did reject the Messiah. We know that they did continue in unrepentance. And so I think this view, even though I'm not 100% ready to embrace it, I think it makes a lot of sense in the, in the, in the sense that it has a lot of good biblical uh, um, backup and it, it also has a lot of good historical backup in that uh, if you read in the, book of, in the books of history on how Jerusalem was destroyed, it is uh, amazingly similar to some of the seals described here and some of the predictions of Jesus in Matthew 24. But again, we're, uh, um, I said that it was going to be a brief summary. In this view, the 144,000 men of Israel that are sealed are a remnant of Jews who are spared from the destruction of Jerusalem because of their faith in Jesus. The third view is the view that that these six seals or seven seals as a description of the times between the first and the second coming of Jesus. In other words, from the time that Jesus uh, uh, became incarnate that he, of, of the Virgin Mary until the time that he comes back, these six seals are describing uh, the way that events will be in this world, especially as it pertains to the persecution of the church, to the tribulation that the believers will endure until the Lord Jesus returns in judgment of his enemies. And so in this view, The 144,000 are a representative of the people of God who have been sealed to be protected from the wrath of God that is coming upon the earth. So I hope that was helpful. It has helped me, but I I hope I haven't confused you with, with all these different views. So in summary, some people see all of this as events that will happen in the future. Some people see all of this as events that have already Uh, transpired with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And some people see this as a symbolic way of showing everything that people are experiencing throughout the history of the world and especially the the age of the church and as suffering that the church will will experience during this time. In case that you haven't noticed, I lean more towards the second. But again, this is a complicated book and I'm not ready to jump Uh, on board of of any of them completely. Um, But let's let's talk a little bit more about our passage. I believe that that the the main point of this passage, the the main message that is trying to be communicated is that only those who have the seal of God can stand before the wrath of God. Only those who have been sealed by God can stand before before his wrath. Now, why do I say this? Well, look at the end of chapter six. 
in chapter 6, verse 16, or, or chapter 15, it says, Then kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain, calling to the mountain, rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? So the question of chapter 6 is, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Well, the answer in chapter 7 is, those who are sealed by God are the ones who can stand before His wrath. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I uh, read uh, Rev, um, Psalm chapter 1 at the beginning, because the, the last line reminds me, the last uh, verse reminds me of this, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So in these two chapters, we see a contrast between those who will experience the wrath of the Lamb, those who cannot stand before the wrath of the Lamb, those who have to be, uh, uh, those who are trying to hide from His wrath, versus those who have received the seal of God and therefore are protected from the wrath of the Lamb and therefore are, um, uh, are not destined for the wrath of the Lamb. Now, I think that in order to interpret uh, chapter 7, it is helpful for us to compare it to chapter 5. So notice in chapter 5 that John is told that the Lion of Judah, the root of, of David, has conquered. These are highly militaristic, highly nationalistic visions, figures, right? The Lion of Judah is this conquering Messiah that would come from the tribe of Judah, would reign, that would exercise dominion over his enemies. And basically the Jewish expectation was that this was going to be a nationalistic Messiah that was going to come and conquer and destroy their enemies and was going to seat on the throne of David. And that's why he is called the root of David. And he was going to bring about victory and he was going to conquer through the sword, through military power. But then what happens when John sees, instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. And this lamb is slain. This lamb is basically bleeding. And through this, the vision of the lion of Judah, the root of David, is interpreted in terms of a sacrificial lamb. In other words, the Jewish nationalistic expectation of a conquering, fighting warrior is interpreted in terms of a suffering sacrificial lamb that conquers, but he conquers through the giving up of his life. And I believe that the same is happening here in chapter 7. First, we are, John is presented with an image of a highly nationalistic army, and then this vision is interpreted in light of a multicultural um, multitude of people that have been redeemed by the Lamb. So let's, let's uh, look at this passage or, or let's uh, 
look at the evidence. So uh, the sixth trump, uh, the sixth seal is interrupted, or or I should say that the seven seals are interrupted in the sixth one. The seven is not come yet. Um, and there comes an angel, right? We read in verse one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth, on sea, or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard, notice again, John heard. Right? Notice that distinction between what John hears and what John sees. So, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then we have this. And then we hear this, uh, or yeah, we, we, John hears the number of the ones who are sealed. Now, this, like I said, is a, is a nationalistic uh, um, image. This is a military image. This takes the form of a military census. Wherever you look in the Old Testament, whenever the people of Israel were getting ready for battle, you see these census or sensi, I don't know, census in plural. Um, you see the, that, that the people of Israel are, are um, numbered. And notice these are males, and it becomes even more specific in chapter 14 of Revelation. These are males. These are males that are ceremonially pure. They are described as virgins. In other words, they are, they are ceremonially pure to go out for battle, to go out for war. They are numbered uh, from each tribe. But notice that the order of the tribes is different. The, the order is altered so that the tribe of Judah is the first one that shows up. And so clearly this is the army that is, that is led by the lion of Judah. This is the messianic army that is getting ready for battle. And so again, a, a Jewish interpreter would say, oh wow, yeah, like this is finally the messianic war. This is finally the, the people of Israel taking over and and finally, all of the promises been fulfilled. But what happens when John looks? Verse 9, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who, seats, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this army of the Lion of Judah, this messianic army is actually interpreted in light of this multicultural, innumerable multitude of people that have been redeemed by the Lamb. So obviously it's not clear yet i i take this uh uh this 144,000 people as a representative or as the first fruits as it says in chapter 14 the first fruits of god's 
uh, God's people, God's elect, those who have been saved, those who will not face the wrath of God, those who have not been destined for wrath. And so why is it that they have not been destined for wrath? Well, because the Lamb has redeemed them. Because they belong to God. They belong to the Lamb. And even though this is an army, this is not a regular army. It's not a, a, an, an army with swords that is going to go and, and actually kill people. Rather, this is an army that will conquer in the same way that their Messiah conquered. How did Jesus conquer? Through his death, through his sacrifice. And so basically, John is telling the seven churches in Asia Minor and the church in general, we are God's army. We are among God's people. We have been sealed. And we are not destined for God's wrath. We are going to fight this battle. But just as our Messiah conquered through his death, we are going to conquer through our death, through our martyrdom. Remember how John introduces himself to the, to the seven churches. He says, I am your brother in tribulation. We are already suffering. We are already being persecuted. So this uh, image of the people of the Lamb, remember, this is interpreted, this army, this nationalistic Jewish army is interpreted in terms of the people of the Lamb. And if you think about it, this is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to the patriarch, right? In, in Genesis 14, 16, he tells Abraham, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. The promise that God made to the patriarchs all along had been the promise of the promise of an innumerable multitude of people. The problem with the Jewish interpreters of, of the Old Testament in Jesus' time was that their interpretation of Scripture was too simplistic and it was centered around their nation. But the, 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 re, the right way to interpret God's word is through the lens of Jesus. The right way to interpret the promises that have been made, that God has made, is through the person of Jesus. And that was, that was their problem. It was too simplistic. It was centered around them. And so if we want to avoid the same mistake, we should not seek to interpret scripture or the book of Revelation in terms of the people of Israel, or in a simplistic kind of way, we should interpret the scriptures in terms of Jesus. He is the one through whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. So, let's look a little bit in more detail at this innumerable multitude. And, and let's draw out a few principles from this.
First of all, we see that, well, verse 9, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So, oh, I'm sorry. Something that I forgot to mention is that I believe that the first image, that of the, of the 144,000, is an image of God's people, but God's people as they are uh, fighting, as they are a, an army, as they are here on earth and they are fighting the messianic war. But as I said, this messianic war is not through the sword, but it's actually through sacrificial, the sacrificial offering of our life. And so these are people that are here, that are proclaiming the word of God, that are giving up their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Lamb. So this is, an again, like I said, this is a military image, but it's also an image of people who are going to die. Notice in chapter 6, uh, in verse 10, there, is, uh, uh, there are all the witnesses that have, uh, that have been slain, and they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, verse 10, how holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so this, this crowd of people that have already been martyred, they are told to wait because the number is not complete yet. There are more people that are going to be martyred. And I believe that these the people that we see in the book in, in chapter 7 are those people that are going to join them. And therefore, this means that, the, like I've been saying, the way that the church conquers, the way that the people of God conquers is through their sacrificial giving up of their lives, their sacrificial witness. And so now let's go to, to a few implications. One of the implications is that God's plan of redemption has always been intended for the whole world, right? We see people from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. God's salvation is for all people. His plan all along has been to save, to redeem the whole world. Like I said, the, the, some of the people in the time of Jesus and some people continue to see as God only focused in one nation. But God's plan all along was to save people from all nations, people from all the world. And so we should be, we should be extremely open about our, our, our preaching of the gospel to everyone to people who are suffering, to people that speak a different language, to people who, who are from a different culture or nation. We shouldn't be nationalistic in any way. Rather, we should be welcoming. We should proclaim the gospel to all nations because salvation is for all people. Another implication is that God is worshipped because salvation belongs to him. Have you noticed how throughout, uh, we, we are only in chapter 7, and, and have you 
Notice how many times God has been worshipped. I didn't actually count them, but it would be really good to go back and count all the times that people just break in worship of our God. Notice all the times that the angels, the four creatures, the saints, people from all, na- all tribes, nations, peoples, and tongues worship the Lord. And this is because he or salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We already have plenty of reasons to worship God. We worship him because he created us. We worship him because he is sovereign. We worship him because he is eternal. But if those reasons are not enough, which they are, why would we not worship him because of his salvation? Someone who has been saved worships. Someone who has experienced redemption cannot do anything but worship. Not just through music, but with our lives. Everything that we do, we do it in worship of the Lamb who redeemed us. Now, I said not just through music, but certainly through music as well. When we sing to our God, we should be the most worshipful people out there. We should sing to him with emotion. I don't know about you, but I, I grew up thinking that, that emotional singing and, and worshiping of our God was uh, wrong for some reason. I thought that worship had to be all, you know, just up here, but not down here. But our whole being has been redeemed. Therefore, a whole being should worship our God with our minds, with our emotions, with, with everything that we have because salvation belongs to him. Because we have conquered through or because he has conquered and therefore we will conquer and we will be with him. Another implication is that we, even though we are destined for tribulation, we are not destined for God's wrath. Now, let me, let me unpack that because I realize that that's a, that's a hefty um, uh, uh, point. We are destined for tribulation, but we are not destined for God's wrath. Where do, where do I get that from? Well, notice, where are these people coming from? When the elder asks John, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Obviously, the question is not because John knows the answer, but actually to get John to ask him, I don't know, you tell me. And so he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. These are not the ones taken out before the tribulation is there. Right? If we take the last view that I was mentioning at the beginning, tribulation has been all along since the moment that the church started, since the moment that Jesus came. These are the ones that have been taken out, that have, that these are the ones that are c- coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, we are not promised to never go through any affliction or tribulation. In fact, affliction and tribulation is the same Greek word. 
In fact, we are promised, or we are, if you go to First um, Thessalonians, we are told that we are destined for tribulation. Look at, or, or I can read it to you, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, I'm writing these things that no one be moved by these afflictions, by these tribulations. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. We are not promised that we will never suffer on this earth. We are not promised that we will not be persecuted. We are not promised that we won't be killed for our faith in Christ. In fact, the, the seven churches of Asia Minor, it almost sounds like all of, most of them, if not all of them, are going to be martyred because of their faith. However, we are promised that we, are not, that we have not been destined for God's wrath. And I think that's the important difference. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, sorry, chapter 5, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. These people that have been sealed, these people that have received the seal of our God on their foreheads, they have received this seal so that they do not endure the wrath of God. So that they are saved from the judgment of God that is coming upon the earth. And therefore we can be, we can rest assured and we can rest at peace knowing that even though we might suffer in this world, even though we might experience tribulation, even though we might be killed, there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. There is no wrath left for us because Jesus already took the wrath reserved for us. This should be our hope that we are, even though we might be destined for tribulation, we are not destined for God's wrath. And therefore, the, my, my invitation for those of you that have not trusted in the Lord Jesus, that have not been washed by the blood of the Lamb is come to him. Ask for his salvation. Ask to be redeemed, to receive his seal. Because there is nothing worse than experiencing God's wrath. For the believers in Asia Minor, the alternative seemed to be deny Christ and enjoy your life here in the Roman Empire being able to trade, to buy, to do whatever you want, or deny Caesar, deny Rome, deny this world, 
and follow Jesus, but suffer, but be persecuted, but experience tribulation and persecution. That seemed to be the, 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 the two alternatives for them. But what John is trying to do here, what Jesus is doing here through the revelation he gave to John is he is encouraging them to see things from a heavenly perspective. He is showing them that even though it looks like they are giving up their lives because of their worship of Jesus, he is telling them, no, in reality, you are saving your lives. You won't experience the wrath of God that is coming upon God's enemies. And so we might be tempted to have the same mindset today of saying, well, if I follow Jesus and I deny this world, I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be rejected by my family, by my friends. If I go to another country and preach the gospel, there's a chance that I'm going to be persecuted there as well and killed. It's easier for me to just live in this world and accept the system of this world and worship Caesar just for the sake of saving my life. But if you continue living that way, you are not saving your life. You are storing up God's wrath upon yourself. But if you worship Jesus, If you live as a faithful witness to him, he gives you his seal. And with his seal, we are saved from his wrath. And finally, this momentary affliction, this momentary tribulation is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Even though we might experience tribulation, notice the great weight of glory that is reserved for those who have been sealed with the seal of God. Verse 13 in Revelation 7. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, sorry, we already read that part. These are the ones uh, coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now notice the, the weight of glory reserved for those who are faithful. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. We will be in God's presence before his throne and serve him day and night in his temple. We will have the joy, the pleasure, the blessing of being in his temple, serving him. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. We've said it multiple times. The presence of God is what makes heaven, what makes the new heavens and the new earth as precious as they are. We want to be with him in his presence because we are sheltered in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. 
these believers in Asia Minor were experiencing hunger, were experiencing thirst. They were dying because of their faith in Christ. We might be experiencing hunger or thirst or spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst, but we will be in the presence of God and we will never experience those again. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. We are totally protected by God. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. What an image, a lamb being a shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Are you experiencing affliction, suffering, lation, sickness? Remain faithful. Persevere. If you have received the seal of God, this is what awaits you. This is how we conquer. We conquer through our faithful witness. We conquer through our sacrificial witness for the Lamb who has already conquered. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are seated on the throne, that you are ruling, that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe. And we thank you that your son Jesus is seated at your right hand and he is reigning. And he has conquered. He has already won the decisive victory over the enemy. And even though things might look extremely complicated here on earth, thank you for giving us this heavenly perspective of what things are in reality. Thank you that we are your people. Thank you that we have received your seal and help us to remain faithful to you knowing that these afflictions, these tribulations are nothing compared to the weight of glory that awaits us in your presence under your protection. We cannot wait for the day that you wipe away our tears, that we are in your temple serving you, that we are before your throne. And thank you, Lord, that we already have a taste of that because you have given us your spirit. You have sealed us with your spirit. And because we can already approach your temple because of the work of your son, Jesus. But we wait, we long for the day when all of your enemies have been defeated and judged and we are with you in the new heavens and the new earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.